Hey, it's Julie, and this is Crispy Bits, the podcast, brought to you by me. Assuming you and I are typical, about a third of our odoreceptor genes are different in a way that affects our perception of flavor. Thoughts and expectations are part of how we experience food, and sounds, visual cues, memories, and all of us have broken pieces, little genetic blind spots in our bitter and smell receptors that collectively determine how we experience what we eat. I want you to meet Bob Holmes. He's a scientist, author, and educator with an interest in the science of taste and flavor. He lives in Edmonton, about two and a half hours north of me. He wrote a book called Flavor, the Science of Our Most Neglected Sense, and I found him a few years ago when I was researching bitter for a story in the Globe and Mail. He's one of the most interesting people I've ever met, and he can talk about food from a perspective we don't often consider, from neurobiology to the science behind the production of processed food. His book is fantastic. I highly recommend seeking it out. And he invited me to his house in Edmonton recently to have a chat about how we differ in the way we experience food and flavor, how two people can experience completely different sensations from the same bite of food, and why we'll never really understand why some people love black jelly beans. Can you walk me through... The, the difference between taste and flavor. Sure. It, it's, the English language doesn't help us much here mm-hmm. because we use the word taste to mean both taste in the strict sense, which is sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami, and maybe a few others. Uh, so that's the strict sense of the word taste. But you know, if I ask how did dinner taste, you're not likely to say, well, the salting level was cra- correct and there was minimal bitterness. You would talk about flavor in general. So we use the word taste to include the whole experience of perceiving flavor. And there is no other word in English for that. And most languages are that way. There is no other word for the whole experience. Interesting. Uh, but, But flavor is both taste and smell and... Uh, the sense of touch, which covers the hot of pepper and the cool of mint, the texture of cream, uh, mouthfeel, mouthfeel, astringency, tannins in tea, all of those kinds of things. And then, as it turns out, the, the part of the brain where all of those things come together also receives input from the thought centers of the brain. Oh, interesting. So that's input to the part of the brain where where we pay attention to where, where we create flavor actually. So that means that expectations and thoughts are part of flavor and that, and sound the, the crunch of a potato chip is part of its flavor. The, you know, the, the bright color of a berry sets up expectations about what kind of flavor it's going to be. So, you know, a strawberry mousse tastes sweeter if it's on a white plate than if it's on a black plate. Right. Because the the contrast makes you think, oh yeah, that's really nice and red. That's going to taste of fruit. Right. I think people don't take those other senses into into consideration. And I remember hearing a, a study that they did with people uh, wearing headphones as they ate potato chips mm-hmm. and the louder the crunch the more the fresher the chip the yeah. chip was perceived to be right yeah so the the loudness of the crunch or actually it's just the high frequency part of it because they could actually play with an equalizer and, and change the balance right so what about your four basic tastes salty sour bitter sweet and, and umami. umami. Yeah. But in the western world we're sort of we we don't know how to describe umami we don't and there's there's a couple reasons for that. One is a cultural blindness, yeah. that we're just not as attuned to that mm-hmm. as 
the Japanese are, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just found out last week, in fact, that you know I've, I've never really got sake. Yeah, it's it seems sort of bland and over overly subtle yeah. for my taste. Mm-hmm. And then someone pointed out to me that where wine plays with acidity, yeah. sake plays with umami. Oh, really? Which is and, and so this brings to the other part of. Uh, of why we have such a hard time with umami. Mm-hmm. And it's that, uh, well, a couple things. One is you never get a pile of umami the way you get a pile, of, you could have a pile of salt or a pile of sugar. So or you MSG. can never, you never get the pure, well, but that's also mixed with salt. So, yeah, so you, you can kind of get that in a, in a somewhat in pure, a pure form. form. Yeah. But the other thing is that our umami receptors saturate at a very low concentration. Oh. So you never get the as intense an experience of umami as you do for the other tastes. Right. So if you have and So that makes pom-pom. it really hard to to figure out what it's about. Yeah. I think I say in the book it's as though you could understand red from uh, you know a rose, a crimson rose and uh yellow from a lemon and then you had to do blue from skim milk. Right. Which tastes so, like melted crayons. I've heard someone say skim milk is like <laughs> melted white crayons and water. But you've got that little faint blueness to a it. Little and blue crayon. But you know, that's kind of the way we perceive umami is just at the just barely over the threshold of perceptibility. Right. And so that makes it harder to oh yeah, that's what umami is. Mm-hmm. The way you can, you know, it, lick a pile of salt and say, Oh a yeah, salty. that oh yeah. well that's that's salt. And right. So now that I know what that intense experience is, I can pick that out in a in a lesser form too. That said, apparently if you get a bunch of Japanese school children and you give them umami, they will instantly say, Oh yes, Recognize. that's umami. Yeah. The same way a North American kid would say, That's sweet. Right. And are there other flavors that, that have not been identified? Other yet? tastes? Other sorry, other tastes? Other other tastes that have been? Yeah. Yeah, like uh, the fat taste. Fat is, I think now certainly one of them. Oh, why? Uh, well, they found a receptor. Oh. In on the tongue, that detects it's not actually fats; it's a component of the fats called fatty acids. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what fats break down into. Right. The thing about the fat taste is that we don't actually like it. Oh, it's, I it's, do. It's, it's well, <laughs> no, you like you like the texture of fat, but the the. The fat taste receptor, which is actually a fatty acid taste receptor, uh, the scientist who found it describes it as, you know, go find some old rancid French fry oil <laughs> and hold your nose and take a mouthful of that and swish it around. And that is the taste of fatty acids. They're, oh. they're breakdown products of fats, and it's, they happen when things are rancid. Uh, and so it's probably a warning taste. Interesting, and it would like be bitter. This, bitter, this yeah. is this is spoiled. This Fat. is spoiled food. Don't eat this. Oh wow! Uh, although, again, you know, often with with a lot of noxious flavors, a little bit is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And there are fatty acids in aged cheeses and a little bit in aged meats and things like that. So a little bit of that is is a good thing, but the pure flavor is is oh, raunchy. It's not. it's not. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, and people associate bitter with unpleasant as well, but yeah. I, mean, I love bitter greens. Yep. 
you know, yep. hoppy beer, coffee. There's a lot of bitterness. That's, yep. And then you have that that balance of taste, right? Why does it work so well when you have, you know, something salty and sour and and you have the umami balance? How do you how do you work with combinations of taste that so that they yeah they, they work um, in your mouth? Balance, I think. Balance, contrast, and similarity. Yeah. Is is what uh, chefs have said to me. One of the research chefs I talked to says his favorite demonstration is with Sauvignon Blanc wine and a variety of foods. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of Sauvignon Blanc wines have got a sort of a green peppery yeah. element to them. And so, if you eat a green pepper first, and then your your sensory apparatus sort of gets used to that. And you don't notice it as much the next time. Mm-hmm. So if you eat the green pepper and then sip the wine, you're going to taste something other than the green pepper in the wine, right? Because you, yeah, actual and green so pepper. you, so you'll get more of the I don't know gooseberries or passion fruit or something like that, right? But then if you eat a bit of passion fruit and then take the next sip of wine, it's going to change again, yeah. So the wine keeps shifting around based on what you've just eaten, mm-hmm. and you can apply the same principle in you know in. in in a di- okay. in a food in a yeah. dish to to get those kinds of contrasts and similarities right and so and, and often there's you need that the, the salt and you need the acid and the sort of fat for the mouthfeel and, mm-hmm. and that's something that you talk about in the book is the physical experience yeah. of food the mouthfeel or the the heat from the mm-hmm. pepper or which and i think does that count the stickiness of a sticky bun yeah, or the that, drippiness yeah. of a taco. Yeah, yeah? <laughs> that's te- that's texture. Well, the drippiness of a taco is probably also some expectation. Yes. Oh, it's running down my arm. This is going to be really juicy and yeah. delicious. And, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever gone to one of those dark dinners? No, I'd love to. What do you th- What do you think the experience would be like? Different, because yeah. you don't get the expectation. No. Everything's a surprise. Yeah. I had an interesting experience a few months ago, mm-hmm. uh, where a, a Russian chef made a, a dish that was entirely transparent, oh. clear, and, yeah. and translucent. So there was a clear liquid with a translucent whitish disc in it and a, a flat, crispy white sheet and some more kind of clear liquid. So there was no visual cue as to what this thing was. And you took a bite and it was... Mushrooms and sour cream on rye bread. Oh, really? Because he'd carefully made the extracts yeah, yeah. and and set it up so that so that all the relevant flavors were there with none of the visual cues. And that's especially potent for Russians because that's their national dish. Yeah. And so you get you get no visual cues and then you put it in your mouth and it's this Super familiar thing. Uh, probably the American and Canadian equivalent would be a, you know, like a cheeseburger or poutine right. or something like that. Yeah. So if you if you had a a, a clear liquid in in your dish and you took a spoonful and it was poutine, that but would be whoa. Is it? And, and that's <laughs> like, the sort of experience that Russians have with this bizarre clear thing. That's liquid. It's like it's, Willy Wonka. Yeah. Like drinking your lunch. Yeah. With the, but is it? Would it be poutine if it didn't have the texture? It's the texture that was... The texture is part of it. And so that, there's some of that missing, of course. Mm. But 
I would guess that the same sort of thing happens in a dark dinner. Yeah. The, oh, right. I don't, I don't know what this is. And then it goes into your mouth and, oh, yeah. And you're yeah. trying to assess its shape and its surface mm-hmm. and its temperature yeah. without seeing it. What fascinates me is that you know you have a table full of people discussing wine or, or beer or food, and and our tastes vary so dramatically. I don't understand how people can love black licorice. Mm-hmm. Like that, that I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. To me, are people experiencing it the same way, and they just enjoy that flavor, or does it? Are they having a different taste experience? Uh, there's probably some of each going on, actually. Yeah. Uh, one thing that happens is that we learn to like certain flavors. I, I mm-hmm. defy anyone to tell me that they liked their first sip of coffee. Oh, right. Yeah. Of course. I hate. That's it, why you add all the sugar and the cream. Yeah, exactly. But later, over time, you come to learn that that bitter flavor goes with the caffeine jolt. It goes with having coffee with friends. And so you build up all these positive associations with it. Mm-hmm. And then you actually come to like the bitterness. Right. Um, it's like growing it, up with something. And loving it because, so I grew up with cream of wheat Mm -hmm. and I bought a box recently when I was just, I was sad. I just, I wanted some sort of comfort. I haven't had it since I was a kid. I bought a box. I brought it home. I put the raisins in the bottom of the bowl like my mom used to do and I ate it and I was like, I don't think that was delicious, but I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if I'd never eaten it before, I would have been like. Why, why do people eat yep. this glue yep. but that association? So that yep. so it taps into your emotional yep. emotional response. Yep. And then the other part of it is that there really are big differences between mm-hmm. people and how they perceive food. I mean, most of what distinguishes one food from another is about smell, mm-hmm. not taste. And as you know, by you know, when you have a cold and, and everything yeah. tastes blah. Yeah. We all say, oh, I have a cold, I can't taste anything. But in fact, what happens is exactly the opposite. When you have cold and can't smell anything, all you have left is taste. Right. And you do a test in your in your book, the jelly bean yeah. test, where people plug their nose and they try a jelly bean and it tastes you know, sweet. sweet and sour and fruity, but they can't identify exactly what flavor yeah. it is yep. until they release their nose. Right. Unless it's the black licorice one. I think I would be able to tell that one. I bet you couldn't. Really? I, I'm I'm betting you couldn't, unless oh. there's a textural thing going on. I wish. But that I would had. be that would be fun to try. It would be. So what we were talking about years ago when I first found you, and I was looking for a, a scientist who could speak about about bitter. Mm-hmm. So we hear about super tasters and non tasters and and people having sort of varying abilities to taste, which explain some of my friends who you know forget to eat or mm-hmm. you know i know people who say if i had a, a bar i could eat three meals a day i would be happy mm-hmm. they just don't enjoy the experience of food mm-hmm. do you and do you think that's a, a taste thing now that it, I bring it maybe up? just or uh, i mean we have different we experience yeah. hunger differently and satiety different like there are so many factors when it comes to the experience yeah. of eating. i imagine there's some component of that and then there's some of it is just Focusing on different things. Yeah. Like I don't notice uh, home decor. Right, yes. It's, it's just not relevant to me. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Or, or fashion. I mean, I'm sitting here in my yeah. old navy sweater yeah, and jeans yeah. that I wear all the time. Yeah, I just don't notice that. Yeah. And I think there are some people, inexplicably to me, that just don't notice what they're eating. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's what makes life so interesting. Mm-hmm. But So we had talked about uh, 
people having different sets of bitter receptors. Yes. And I find that fascinating because it's not common knowledge that a third, correct me if I'm remembering wrong, but a third of the population genetically can't detect a, a group of bitter compounds. Mm-hmm. Is this right? I think that's about right. Yeah. And, and, and it was a recent discovery, fairly recent in the early 2000s, I yep. believe. It was probably in the 2000s that we found out that that's because they're missing this particular bitter receptor T2R38. Gene. Yeah. Yes. So, which is different from the asparagus yep. pea-smelling yeah, gene. Which, which is an odor <laughs> receptor. So we've got, you know, there's probably 20-some different bitter receptors tuned mm-hmm. to a variety of different things. One of them does the bitter of, you know, broccoli and bitter green brussels sprouts and bitter greens a different one does quinine a different one i think it's a different one does caffeine mm-hmm. uh and and a whole whole range of different things and not all of those genes work in all of us in fact all of us have some broken ones so we've all got little blind spots in our bitter receptors and even more so in our smell receptors because there's about 400 different odor receptor genes really and some substantial proportion are broken in each of us. So I knew I was if, broken. If you, if you and I are typical, then probably about 30% of our rotoreceptor genes are different. Really? In a way that affects our perception. Of taste. Yeah, of flavor. Of, of flavor, yeah. of flavor. So we have more bitter receptors than salt, salty and yep. sweet and sour yep. because historically bitter was... A warning sign right. against toxins. And there were lots poison. of different toxins that needed warning against. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But what interests me is that if you don't taste the bitterness in brassica vegetables or mm-hmm. coffee or hops, the sweet and the, the salty would be would be different as well. Yeah, that's not? probably right. I, I don't know if anybody's ever actually studied that, oh. uh, which would be interesting to know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely, you know, Bitter and sweet cross inhibit one another, mm-hmm. which which is why which is why tonic water works because uh, the sweet of the tonic water inhibits some of the bitterness of the quinine, but also the quinine inhibits the sweet taste, and it turns out that tonic water is actually one of the sweetest of of soft drinks. Yeah. If you look at the sugar content on the can, yeah. uh, it's it's on the high end. It's really Even sweet. though it doesn't taste that way. No. Well, and some people put a little bit of lime or a little bit of salt in mm-hmm. their hoppy beer. Yeah, which also to... helps to cross-inhibit the bitterness. Yeah. So if you weren't detecting that bitterness, how, would, how would it taste different? You wouldn't, yeah, well... How would the dish taste... We, we, we don't know. We and don't really know. That's but... the interesting thing, because we don't know what each, other people are experiencing when, mm-hmm. they, when they taste something. Mm-hmm. You could probably do it. I imagine you could give someone who didn't taste the bitterness of hops, say, mm-hmm. you could give them a beer and then a range of sugar solutions and say, match the sweetness. Oh, yeah. And if the bitter inhibits the perception of sweet and they're missing that, then they would taste the beer as sweeter. Yes. Then I would because I get the bitter from the hops. Exactly. So you could probably do it. I don't like I said I don't think anybody's ever done it that I'm aware of. Oh, we should do but that. That would we be fun. That would what actually be really fun. What about cooking? How does how does heat affect the flavor of food and then our, our taste experience of it? Like the yeah. Maillard reaction or caramelization. Mm-hmm. So the, the big picture of it is that the molecules in raw foods, like a raw piece of meat or a raw vegetable, 
tend to be big molecules. Right. They're whole proteins, whole starches, those sorts of yeah. things, which you know, to smell something, you've got to have a molecule that's small enough to be airborne and get up to your into nice. your nose to, so you can perceive it. Hmm. And so part of what happens during cooking and during aging and during fermentation and all of those things is breaking down those big protein molecules into smaller things that can become volatile and can actually get to our nose so that we get flavor. So that's one of the reasons cooking releases flavor. Right. But then the other thing that happens is as as you cook something – you get this wonderful thing called the Maillard reaction, yes. which is, they call it the reaction, but it's actually, a, you know, there's at least six or 700 different reactions going on. Oh, wow. Uh, it's, I, I like to think of it as a braided stream. You start with uh, proteins and sugars or components of proteins and sugars mm-hmm. reacting with one another to form new compounds. And then those compounds react and form new compounds and new compounds and new compounds. Mm-hmm. And so you get this massive production of flavorful compounds right uh and that's that's what happens when your steak turns brown yeah on the grill it's what happens when your mushrooms brown Brown. in the pan yeah when you toast when you toast yeah it's what happens on the crust of a fresh baked bread all those wonderful all those things that make flavor yeah are are maillard reaction products right uh the surface of a french fry that's why french fries are wonderful yes you don't boil a french fry yeah yeah and so cooking something by steam or liquid prevents the maillard reaction because it has to for the most part, above. it happens at temperatures above the boiling, boiling point of water. water. So yeah. if you're steaming or boiling something or poaching it, that's all below the temperature at which Maillard reaction happens very fast. Right. So that's why a boiled piece of meat doesn't brown. No, and that's why you pat the surface of your chicken dry before or your you, steak. Before you brown it, yep. Exactly, so yep. you need it to brown. So what's the difference between the Maillard reaction and caramelization? Is, is it the protein? Yeah, Car- caramelization is the same sort of thing, except it's just sugars reacting mm-hmm. by, by themselves without, without the input of, of proteins. Right. But, I mean, it works fine just to think of it as browning reactions yeah. uh, with or without Proteins, sugars with or without proteins, they're all going to do the same sort of thing. Right. And products are going to change, and so the the specific flavors will be different. Right. And the degree to which you cook the food, and once you get into yeah. the, the burning realm, you yep. have a different collection of flavors. Yeah, if you let it run longer, then yeah. you'll get a different set of, fr- of flavors than if you let it run shorter. Uh, you know, if your starting point contains more of one amino acid, which is a, you know, a component of a protein, more of one amino acid than another that'll push the Maillard reaction in one direction if you, you know, versus another. Uh, you know, if you have a lot of fructose in the sugars, it pushes it in a different direction than if you have a lot of glucose in the sugars. Right. So I, food scientists do this all the time oh, when yeah. they're designing artificial flavors. Instead of, instead of browning chicken, they're going to start with specific amino acids and specific sugars mm-hmm. to start their Maillard reaction because that favors the chickeny flavors in their in their artificial right. flavor. In their little seasoning packet. Yeah. That is a whole fascinating conversation, I think, the science of creating flavor for mm-hmm. processed food. And you you say in your book that if you have an apple and a green apple candy, which one has more chemicals? chemicals. It's actually the, it's, the it's apple. Totally, it's the apple. Yeah. Because every yeah, apple is 
made entirely of chemicals. Yeah. And the the you know the Jolly Rancher apple candy has I think it's twenty four components. Uh, you know somebody designed that Jolly Rancher to have those twenty four chemicals in it. And and you the way you describe it, you you let people fill in the gap. So it's sort of a simplified version of apple and then let people sort of round it out in their yeah. mind. Yeah. Almost. I mean there's there's actually probably no technical reason why an artificial flavor couldn't be just as good as mm-hmm. a real one. You know, a strawberry is made of chemicals and it's theoretically possible to identify every one of those chemicals in its quantity and to recreate that in the lab with exactly those same chemicals in exactly the same proportions. And that should taste exactly the same as that perfectly ripe strawberry without the texture, of course. The catch is that that would cost a fortune. And, you know, if you're making strawberry jello, you can't charge $25 a pack. No, no. You probably could not. Well, and I think when it comes to a, a candy, people want strawberry flavor. They don't want an actual strawberry yeah. experience, yeah. right? It's a different. It's strawberry yeah. candy, watermelon candy. Watermelon candy is the worst. Actually, that turns out to be because watermelon has a one of the key flavor components in watermelon is extremely transient. It doesn't last very long. It's oh. volatile and it goes away. Oh. And so as soon as you... As soon as you cut a watermelon, it starts to go, which is probably why day-old watermelon isn't oh, as no. good. Yeah, and the slime factor as well. Well, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it means you can't you can't you could create a, an excellent watermelon flavor, but it won't last very long. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought you were going to say it was the same as soap, which wouldn't have surprised me. <laughs> it tastes like to me, or like uh, cilantro. That's another genetic. Mm-hmm. So are people genetically predisposed to not like cilantro or is that a myth? There, no, there is a, there is a gene that affects cilantro perception. Mm. And people with one variant of the gene tend to like cilantro and people with the other variant tend not to. And so it, it does make a difference. The catch is it doesn't make much of a difference. You know, the geneticists can actually measure how big an effect that particular gene has. You know, if, if everyone with variant A liked cilantro and everyone with variant B didn't, mm-hmm. you'd say that, okay, that gene explains 100% of the difference between you and me. Right. Uh, if it made absolutely no difference, you'd say it explains zero. And so when they actually do the calculation, it explains about 10% of the variance. Oh, interesting. So it's, yeah, it's there, it's measurable, it has an effect, but other stuff is more important. Right. And whether you grew up, whether you a grew lot up with it, yeah, yeah, oysters taste better with the sounds of seashore in the background. <laughs> so it's your surroundings have a huge effect as well. Totally, right? Totally, yeah, yeah. That's one of the one of the classic studies. Again, is is people they actually fed people oysters uh, while they listened to you know seagulls cawing and waves breaking, or cattle mooing and the <laughs> the oysters taste brinier and have a, a fresher more oceanic flavor if you're hearing the seagulls and waves than huh. if you're hearing the cows interesting so they should be doing this in restaurants they, they are should be in fact are uh, they? heston blumenthal does that at the fat duck what does he play he plays sounds of the sea oh. one of his classic dishes uh, last time i looked it was still on the menu and it's been there for most of a decade at least now uh you get served a, it's an edible diorama of 
you know, there's an oyster there, I think, and some fish mm-hmm. and edible sand and seawater foam and stuff. Wow. But you also get a seashell with two earbuds coming, you know, with, with earbuds coming out of it. You put in the earbuds and you hear the sounds of the sea really? while you eat the seafood, uh, you know, edible seafood diorama. That's interesting. I heard a, a, a story or a podcast or a study that had been done on, uh, on wine and your perception of wine listening to different kinds of music. Mm -hmm. So they had these tasters listening to, you know, heavy metal and classical, Mm -hmm. all these different kinds of music. And their descriptions of the wine matched the music, Mm -hmm. not even though it was the same wine. Oh, yeah. Another one of these famous studies uh, where they took students in the wine program at the University of Bordeaux. So these are actually people training to spend their lives in the wine industry. They're Mm -hmm. not, they're not rubes off the street. Uh, and they gave them a couple of wines, just three wines to smell. There was a red wine, and they sniffed it, and they described you know, the usual red wine flavors. Mm-hmm. So it's got blackberries and cedar and maybe a little pepper. And then they gave them a white wine. Yes, this is lemon, and you know, there's some floral notes here and so forth. And then they gave them another red wine, and they got, again, red wine, blackberries, and so forth. Yeah. But that second red wine was actually the white wine with odorless food coloring added. Really? And so they were completely influenced by their expectations yeah. again. And, yeah. and the irony is these students probably did worse than the rube off the street because they had expectations. They had knowledge already. Right. So they saw it as red and, okay, it's going to have some sort of red flavor yeah. components in it. Yeah. Well, and I have a, a sommelier friend who does wine tastings and teaches classes, and she won't let the tasters know the price point of the yeah. wine. And that drives them crazy because I think that's another preconceived. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, over and over again, the studies show that if you know a wine is expensive, you're going to find it tastes better. better. Uh, you, they, they can serve people the same wine yeah. and tell them this is a $5 wine or tell them it's a $90 wine. And they will like it better, even though it's the same wine, when they're told it's a $90 wine. The irony being that most random people, if you give them wines and don't tell them what the, what the price is, mm-hmm. will just tend to prefer the cheaper wines. Oh, interesting. You know, your, oh. your average person off the street. So- uh, because... Most people aren't that experienced with wine and they don't, you know, the subtleties are largely lost. It's all, okay, this is a big fruit bomb. I like this. Uh, So probably the best way to make your guests happy at dinner is to serve them a cheap wine and tell them it's expensive. (laughs) Just put a different label on it. Put a different label on it or put it in a carafe. (laughs) It's all about the label. Yeah, decant it. Right, right. Is it possible to train yourself to be a better taster? Sure. Practice. I've been yeah, practice, 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 yeah. uh, you know, pay attention. Mm-hmm. And, and that's basically what wine experts have done. Uh, the studies, there aren't actually all that many studies comparing the, you know, how, how sensitive the noses are of sommeliers versus the right. regular public. Cause what some would ever say, yeah, I'll take that test and risk, Finding out that they're in the tenth percentile. No, for, of yeah. course, yeah. You, that, Be exposed. You're, yeah, your your life is ruined at that point. Yeah. So they, there aren't very many studies, but the few that are out there suggest that you know, their noses are no more sensitive than the rest of us. What about what they have is vocabulary. 
Right, of course, of course. And they they think, they, yeah. they, they focus. Experience and vocabulary. Right. Yeah. There's an old study that suggests that people can't just accurately pick out more than three or four flavors in a mixture, or aromas in a mixture. Oh, interesting. And so when you read these tasting notes with 10 or 12 yeah. elements in a wine, nobody could do that accurately. Interesting. So it, it's it's either... It's bullshit. either bullshit or else it's averaged over a whole bunch of people. Right. But I've been in groups of people where, you know, everyone's tasting the wine and they're, they're sort of commenting and someone will say, oh, it's damp soil after an early morning rain. And everyone's like, oh, yes, yes. But I think the power of suggestion is strong. The power of suggestion is strong. But the other part of that is that it's a lot easier to recognize something once you've heard the name. Right. So, so... Oh yeah, there's that thing in this wine. Yeah, uh, I can't put my tongue on it, uh, but once you tell me that it's cedar, oh yeah, that's what that's, it is. That's what it is. And you were saying that what what holds people back is the vocabulary, lack yeah, of vocabulary, totally. not that they're not tasting. Yeah. There are people who are super tasters and mm-hmm. non-tasters, air quotes, non-taster. Mm-hmm. They actually taste, but not as. And it's just a concentration of. Taste, taste buds, buds, yeah, essentially, and or whatever other machinery is involved in translating mm-hmm. molecules in the mouth into perceptions, and the and the super tasters, which I think everyone wants to be a super taster, mm-hmm. but they tend to be more picky. Yeah, right? I mean, it sounds wonderful to be a yeah. super taster, but in fact, those are the picky eaters. Yeah, uh, picky eaters are much more likely to be super tasters than anybody else because it's it, it's so intense. Yeah, uh, you know. I when I was tested, I'm I'm probably at least on the border of super tastering, mm-hmm. and you know I don't like a really tart apple. No, I don't like tea without milk because the tannins are too Same. too intense. Mm-hmm. Um, I on the other hand, I do drink my coffee black. I like the hoppiest beer I can find. Oh, I yeah. I love rapini. Mm-hmm, me too, uh, and and so forth. But I've learned. Yeah. In those cases. Uh, one researcher I talked to suggests that you know, there's another dimension. There's people who are food adventurous and people who are non-food adventurous. Oh. And if you're a non-food adventurous super taster, then you're going to have a really narrow... You're, you're going to be the person that wants white bread and right. bologna. Buttered pasta. Uh, yeah. And if you're food adventurous, then you're going to... Yes, they're intense experiences, but you'll seek them out because mm-hmm. they're cool. Can and you teach kids to be food adventurists? That's a good question. Probably some. Yeah. And then uh, some tend to be more picky. Yeah. And, I, uh, yeah. I mean, it's sort of adults. You know, yeah. It's not just kids who are picky. But I feel like it's reinforced a lot in kids. Mm-hmm. And then they establish that idea of themselves as a picky eater early on. Yeah. Right? Because people refer to yeah. them, oh, she's a picky eater. This is amazing. Oh, good. I could talk to you for hours. Oh, good. And I have a feeling that we may be talking again in, Excellent. The, in the future. Oh, I would love that. So yeah. thank you so and, much. Hey, you bet. Hey, you made it to the end of our conversation. Thanks for listening. And today's secret word is watermelon. So if you send that to me on social media or by email, one of you will win a prize.